Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Sunday Mint, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Owen Bickford. Hey, Owen. Hey, Sunday. This season theme is Elixir in a polyglot environment, where we talk about how Elixir works with other languages. Today, we are joined by special guest, Kalina Astengo from NAV. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, doing great. Now, would we say NAV or NAV Inc? Just NAV is fine. Okay, cool. So grateful to have you today. Where are you calling in from? From super hot Salt Lake City today, actually. So it's hot in Salt Lake City because we were there like five seconds ago and it was pretty cold. Yeah, it's been kind of on the 60s this whole week, but it's going to be 91 later today. So it's kind of random. But yeah, it's, it's sunny and nice outside. Wow. When we were there, it was like what low to mid 70s. Mm. Right. We had this whole discussion. The whole time leading up to MPEX, Owen kept saying, it's going to be beautiful weather. I got there a day <laughs> earlier and it was like 40 degrees. And I was like, Owen. <laughs> hey, when I arrived, it was like 65, 68 yeah, yeah, degrees. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was good. It was perfect when I was there. It's been on the edge there. <laughs> I had a number of people like say, are you okay? Do you need my sweater? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, you have to come prepared in May just because it's it's kind of like heading towards summer, but it's still you get snow randomly. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be either or. So you always have to have uh, the long sleeves out. Wow. On the day of MPEX, it was beautiful. It was like peak picnic weather is what I would describe. Were you at MPEX and I just totally missed you? No, I had no idea what was happening. Uh, my friend <laughs> reached out and was like, are you going to the conference? I was like, there's a conference here. Oh, um, no. In my defense, I just became a new mom. So everything has like slipped my mind other than the babies. Well, <laughs> congratulations. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that is amazing. And yeah, totally excused. But I, I definitely... I understand the uh, the feeling of a little bit of FOMO when you're like, when everyone comes to your town, you're like, oh, I miss them. <laughs> I'm so sad. <laughs> well, hopefully there will be more opportunities in the future for sure. Salt Lake was beautiful, by the way. Like just walking around the, the downtown was beautiful. Having the mountains everywhere you look. Was, was that your first time here? Yes. Sunday, had you been there before? I, I had to think about it. No, I've never been to Utah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how do you like living in Salt Lake? I love it. I used to uh, live in Southern Utah. That's where I was a process engineer and worked at a mine. <laughs> Top We're going to talk about maybe. that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then we came here to visit my uh, husband's like in-laws and I loved it here just because I wasn't a, a software engineer yet and it seemed like tech hub type place with a lot of fun startups. And just like the hiking, being so close. And then you have the lake and it's like desert, but the like forest as well. And then like skiing and it's very like outdoorsy is the place to be for people that like to be outside a lot. Yeah. Um, not that I do a great job at doing that, but you know. Hey, we all nice aspire to, to get outside once a week or more, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> once a week? Oh my God. Owen. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> like there was just something so amazing and humbling just to come outside and see a mountain that's like a thousand times higher than anything that you could ever dream to touch. It was just, I don't know. I've felt very calm working next to water. Like when I had an office that was on the water and I had a similar feeling seeing mountains and I, I'm not from or see many mountains, but this year I've seen a lot of mountains. <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful. It's nice to see them with like the top with the snow and it's really nice. When you're commuting, you have mountains on both sides. 
And yeah, it oh, just kind of wow. sucks because the inversion gets bad. Inversion. Yeah, the dirty air gets trapped between both mountain ranges. The air quality gets really terrible. Like I think one day last year when the California fires were going on, all of that stuff comes over here. I think we had the worst like air quality in the world that day. So Oh, wow. Yeah. Air quality is not something I ever really think about until it's like really bad. It's like bad enough for people to be talking about it. And they're like, don't go outside today. The air is terrible to breathe. I'm like, are we living in a sci-fi movie? <laughs> I think we are here. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Noted. Hopefully Inversion. this summer is better. Mm-hmm. There's less fires. I mean, I hope that we're all hoping for less fires, but yeah, that should keep the air a little bit cleaner this summer. Because last summer it was like, couldn't do much outside because the air was so bad. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. I did say we're going to jump all around. And since you've already mentioned <laughs> it, I really want to know what a process engineer is. <laughs> so I actually went to school for chemical engineering. I went to Virginia Tech. And, oh, so closer uh, to my side of the planet. You, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the only thing I didn't want to do was work in mining because my parents worked in mining. And I was like, I don't want to live in a small town and work at a mine. And that's where I ended up because in I needed a small a job. town and working at a mine? Yes. It's so funny how life works. <laughs> <laughs> but I also met my husband there, so it worked out. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of fun. So I was a process engineer at a mining company. So I kind of just like was over the process. So we had like a mine, we mined ore, and then we extracted the copper from the ore into just like copper plates. So from like dirt to copper plates, we had like two different processes. There was one called flotation where you actually like make the minerals float, believe it or not. And then you collect it into like a concentrate and then you ship that off. And then the other process is like leaching where you like use acid to get the copper out into solution and then plate it in a electro winning process. So that's what I worked on before I decided to be a software engineer. Were you like hands-on, like hands in the mud or like in the mine? Or was this <laughs> kind of like overseeing, like playing Factorio and just like making it all happen? Yeah, <laughs> more like the second. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I actually just heard about Factorio and I haven't played it yet. I've played like not a lot of time. It's been a few years actually since I've played it. It was kind of fun. But for me, it felt a lot more like work. It was like... <laughs> It just felt like it quickly turned into a, like a, another job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you're constantly like problem solving. And, and, you know, at the end of a long day problem solving, that's, you know. I don't know. I think much. world probably also takes a lot of brain power. Owen. <laughs> Wordle, <laughs> you know, daily most days I'm 30 seconds. <laughs> Maybe a couple minutes, you know. Oh, man, that's so interesting. So what prompted the switch from process engineering to, to software engineering? Yeah, I was always kind of between both. Even when I went to school, I was about to go in computer science, but I was like slightly intimidated by all the other people that had started programming since like birth, basically, (laughs) that they were in the program. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to suck at it. But it always was like back of mind. And then I was working at the mine and I started taking some like Ruby courses. And then I did like a PHP website for our wedding, our SVP, and had a lot of fun. And then I was like, I kind of want to do this like all the time and was looking at boot camps and stuff. But then I decided to just take Ruby on Rails course on Coursera and completed it. And then I just sent like code samples and started interviewing because if that didn't work, then I was going to do a boot camp. But that ended up working for NAV. And then I've been, <laughs> I've been here ever since. So 
Oh, wow. That's so good. We love a wedding website origin story. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's not the first time that's ever happened. No, it was a dude who said he did MySpace. It was a few seasons ago. He made like a, a Backstreet Boys website for his crush and it worked. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a wedding website origin story, plus all the, you know, Coursera is obviously a great tool for you to use to teach. So did you pick up Elixir at NAV then? Is that how that kind of came to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I started with Ruby, but then right about the time I started, there was someone that was very interested in Elixir. And it kind of seemed like the right fit for a marketplace application. So it used to be a Ruby and Rails app, and then we, we wrote a Phoenix app. And that's how I learned Elixir. And I'm still actually maintaining that same application. I've jumped around a lot at NAV between teams and stuff. But now I'm back in the marketplace writing a little bit of Elixir. Before we start getting into the stack of NAV, what is the business of NAV? What does NAV do? So NAV is basically like a financial health platform for small businesses. We have uh, personal reports, business reports available for them for credit monitoring. And then we kind of use that data and self-provided data to match up the user with their best financing option. We try to help out the customers by giving them the best option to qualify for while also reducing the chance they're going to get into predatory lending and stuff like that. So like the best you can qualify for is our goal. And we use data um, to make that happen. So helping small businesses, our mission is to reduce the, the death rate of small businesses. Awesome. Cool. And then, yeah, Owen, let us right there. So the stack is previously Ruby, but is now Elixir and Phoenix? We still have Ruby. Okay. It's hard to kill off <laughs> the languages <laughs> after you have the legacy applications written in them. So yeah. it's true. we actually have a lot of languages. We have JavaScript for and React kind of for like the front end. We also need like Node and Apollo for the middleware there. And then back in we have Go, Python, Ruby, and Elixir. Whew, you got the whole suite. <laughs> yes. Sandy, um, is yeah. this the most polyglot stack that we've encountered on this polyglot once, season? Once, maybe. <laughs> you know, we should have been keeping a count, like a tally, right, like a, a little sticky note with like the number of languages at once. Because I mean, yes. of course, we've talked to plenty of people who, who've worked in many languages over their career, but like at the same time, would you even categorize that as at the same time? Are you writing all these languages at once or are you flipping and flopping or is there like a specialization thing that people are doing? Yeah, I think it depends. Like currently we do have like a front end team. So they'll do JavaScript and React. And then we have like a front end platform team that does the Node and Apollo stuff. But I think they, they kind of jump back and forth. And then Python, we usually use it for more like the machine learning and data stuff. Then Elixir and Go and Ruby are kind of like what you would expect in a like in a back end team. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, I can't believe we hadn't thought of it took this far into the season, Owen, for me to think of this question. How do you keep yourselves up to date on all of these languages? Because that must be like a massive endeavor. Yeah, I think like we are slacking a little bit. Like, I don't think any of us that do Elixir and Nav brought up the conference. So I don't know if anyone's actually like reading stuff about Elixir right now. I would say that we have decided kind of as a company to continue with Go rather than like having 
Ruby and Elixir. At a time, it was like Ruby and Elixir. But I think this last year, we just decided to go with Go. Oh, sorry, I said Go and Elixir. Go now, with Go. go. <laughs> yeah, so now just, just Go, just because it's hard. I was a manager, actually, last year. And managing a team, I could see more of the problem. For me, it was always like easy, not like easy, but it wasn't a problem for me to jump from Go to Elixir to Ruby. But when I was managing it, and then I could see like the problems that not everybody can do that or wants to do that. Usually when someone joins a company, they're told you're going to do Go and that's what they expect. And then if you switch it on them, oh, you also have to like read Ruby and maybe a little bit of Elixir. They're like, what? So it's a little bit hard and it's hard to jump between those languages and not having like an expert matter in all of those. So I think I got derailed from the original question. But no, no, no. That's like this, this is exactly what we want to talk about because even like at SmartLogic, we are also polyglots in that we have Elixir and Ruby and Flutter and JavaScript. And it's like all sort of mixed in there. And similarly, like I actually love that aspect because I don't want to write one thing kind of all the time, but that's me. I don't know, Owen, do you have a preference about the switching back and forth or like the staying in one? I would write Elixir all day if I could. <laughs> but yeah, I'm comfortable writing JavaScript when I have to. So you have if to. I've, you said when you I have, have to. to. <laughs> I have to write JavaScript to do things sometimes like in a very vanilla way. So it's fine. But I can kind of hear exactly what you're describing. Say you're on a team and you've got two or three different backend languages. And if everything's broken out into microservices and you're context switching constantly, not only between like the the service itself and like the type of work you're doing, but also the language and all of the packages or you know, dependencies that go along with that. I can see that adding a lot of friction to the development team. Context switching sounds like a big reason to maybe distill things down into a, a more consistent stack. Were there other concerns about using multiple languages, at least on the back end? I think you just like kind of get more fluent when you're in one longer, like I've been writing Elixir this past few months, but before that I was doing Go and I feel like I was getting better at writing Go and then you kind of lose that efficiency when you switch and you have to like think about something differently. I think the other thing that I've seen is we used to have a gen server and timer to like update things. So the gen server and supervisor thing is like very Elixir. And usually when you're in another like Ruby or Go, you don't think about that stuff. So when you have that kind of special type of code in your application and then someone comes from another stack and they're like, I have no idea how that's happening. It's like they have to get used to it and like learn about it. So it kind of raises that curve there. Yeah, planning for ramp up time, I think, is definitely a difficult one when you're talking about context switching between languages. How did you all come to the conclusion that Go was the one you wanted to, to move forward with? I'm actually not 100% sure how we decided. I think a lot of the microservices that we started splitting out were written in Go. So at the time, it did seem like we had a lot more Go than Elixir. And I think we've always seen like a faster ramp up time in Go than in Elixir. I think it's it's kind of just basic. I don't know. I prefer Elixir personally. <laughs> but and I've folks, seen that we Go... didn't make her say that just because she's on Elixir Wizards. <laughs> Right. No, they did not force me. Full disclaimer. <laughs> Are you seeing like more functional Go and is Elixir influencing the Go code that people are writing? I think I've seen it written more functionally, actually. 
even I forget when I'm writing in Go that it is not functional and that you can mutate things and that that might be a better choice just because it's more like idiomatic. But personally, I kind of write it more functional because it makes more sense. And I've seen others do the same, especially people coming from a more functional background. Just had an idea. You should write a gen server and a supervisor in Go just to <laughs> just to have a module in there that's called that at least. <laughs> yeah, so people get familiar with it. And then Don't you're like, but anyone. you already done it before. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of resourcing and keeping up to date on Elixir conferences, ElixirConf is at the time of recording in the future in Aurora, so not too far from you in Salt Lake. Is NAV completely remote? Are you are you distributed across the country or the world? Yeah. With COVID, we actually went fully distributed. There's quite a few of us that are in Utah, and we do have like an office in Utah. Our headquarters is in the West Coast. Yeah, we do have the office here. So there's a few engineers that are still here, but mostly we've been hiring from like Atlanta and like everywhere, actually. We we're more distributed than we've ever been and it's made it a little bit easier to hire yeah. talent because sure. it's like it was impossible to find like a Go or Elixir engineer before and now it's been a little bit easier. It's fun to meet people that you've been working with and then you're never seeing them and then you see them in person, you're like, you look different. You're taller than I imagined. We just talked about this at a company meeting the other last week, I think was it, Owen, where we were like, everyone, this one person gives us five eight energy, but she's five three and somebody else is actually six seven, but we had no idea. <laughs> you know. It's wild. Cannot wait for like a company get together. Have you had one since COVID started? Also, you're a new mom, so you probably haven't traveled too much, but. I did go to a leadership thing we had last year, right before I went on leave. And I got to meet a lot of the people that I work with. It was a lot of fun. We actually had to make like a video of like Beetlejuice. We had to like replicate it. It was like a team activity. And I had never seen Beetlejuice before. And I got (laughs) to meet some new teammates and we had a lot of fun. At first I was like, oh, why? And then you're like, have so much fun. I've got to hear what this Beetlejuice activity was. You were like creating like a home movie version of Beetlejuice or like. Okay. Oh, yes. No. There Sounds was, awesome. Like, they, you got to sign like a movie. Some people got an easier movie like Avengers or like Frozen that people actually have seen. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's not old. Hey. Ghostbusters was pretty good. Have you seen Beetlejuice since you made your home movie version? I did see it was available on one of the streaming services, but I still have not watched it. <laughs> it's a it's a Michael Keaton classic. It's got it's got some really memorable performances. Yeah, you could also like wait till Halloween. That's fine. It's accept- socially acceptable. I think I think most of us hadn't seen it, so we just had to rely on one of our teammates' like description of it, and then we kind of did like a coding twist on it. Like, yeah, it's it was fun. Testing, testing, testing. And then all the tests are written. There we go. That's how it works, right? Yeah, we, we kind of played like the tag deck card in there and uh, that it was scary. And yeah, it's fun. You got bugs just like creeping up out of the cemetery of dead code. Oh my code. God. No, we have to stop. <laughs> we have to stop. I'm so squeamish. Um, okay. So on a more fun note, I feel like the last time... I was really aware of something you had done in the community was your ElixirConf 2020 talk, which I did attend virtually because that was the virtual one. But I had just started at SmartLogic, so my brain was like all over the place. And I can't even remember 
too much of the, the conference itself. Forget like specific talks. So could you just give us like a quick elevator pitch for what that talk was? Maybe takeaways that you liked? Maybe a good question that came from the audience? I know that was two years ago. This is a heavy ask. <laughs> yes. What did I even say two years ago? The gist of it is we had just started using gRPC maybe like the year before or somewhere around that time. And I thought it was really interesting how it worked for like the polyglot type of, you know, architecture. So what I did in my talk is I kind of just introduced gRPC and how Nav uses it because we have GraphQL, REST and gRPC at some point. And then we decided to just use gRPC for backend to backend communication and then GraphQL between backend and front end, and then just leave rest out completely out of the question. And we chose gRPC because it's fast and you could define the contracts. So with gRPC and uh, protocol buffers, you can use them to define your types, what methods are available on the service. So then you have like guarantees on what things will look like on the client and the server side. And the coolest thing is that with, with the protocol buffers, you can generate code. We could generate like an Elixir library, a Go library, a Ruby library, a Python library, all from the same proto definitions and utilize those in the code and make it seamless kind of in a way like you weren't dealing with different languages because you were using this like generated code. So I go over that in the talk and then kind of how we use it at NAV because we have one repository where we keep all the protocol buffer definitions. And then like I, I use Pokemon because everybody knows Pokemon, you know. I did appreciate that. I've also <laughs> used Pokemon in a like side project once. Exactly. So easy. And notoriously, easy. you have a Psyduck shirt that. Oh, my God, it shrank, Owen. It shrank. <laughs> oh, no. I can't fit oh, into it no. anymore. <laughs> if anyone from community.com was listening, Jeff, I'm so sorry. I shrank the Psyduck sweater. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm legitimately thinking of buying another one, but it came all the way from Australia. Oh. Uh, yes, yes. We do like we do like Pokemon in this house. <laughs> yes. That's why I use it because it's like people love Pokemon. Kind of use that as an example to find like a Pokemon struct, you know, and then have like types of string and integer and all that. And you can generate then the code in Elixir and go. So we have the repo with the definitions and then we have an Elixir repo, a Go repo, a Ruby repo that gets updated from that. And then you just import that into your project and then you just have this module all of a sudden that you just have one function and then you just call it. So it basically feels like you're not making a like a remote call anywhere. It feels like you're in the code, just calling a function in a module and getting data back. Really cool. So it was just pretty exciting at the time and then decided it was a good thing to talk about with Elixir and other languages. So. How's the tooling around gRPC and protobuf in Elixir? Did you have to like build a new package or was there something already pre-made for that? The one that there is has been sufficient. We have been running into issues with one of the dependencies gun. It's not, I think it's used for the streaming part. It's not updated all the way. So there's a gRPC gun, but then another one of, we use launch darkly for feature flags and that one has like the old version of gun. And now it's like, <laughs> so I uh. feel like gRPC, it's, not like I think this doesn't say it has like a warning on it that it's like a production it's not exactly production ready, but we still use it in production. 
but yeah, I think the tooling's been it's been good. I mean, other than that dependency issue, which is not that small, the other one needs to be updated. It's been great. When would you, since you've given a talk about gRPC, this is something I haven't, I've watched videos and kind of studied a little bit, have not implemented a gRPC service yet. But is there like a point where you've kind of outgrown REST and you need to reach out to gRPC or is there like a, how would you kind of decide when to use REST, when to use gRPC or GraphQL or something else? Yeah, I think if you're making something lightweight, REST still makes sense. But when you have a microservices architecture and you have all these services with different methods and different data, you have to kind of keep organized. And that's why we're leaning into the protocol buffers. It's just, you can define your types and then we have like one house for like all the types. You can do the same with GraphQL. And we do use GraphQL for the front end and leverage like Apollo tooling because it's really good. But it's too heavyweight for the back end. We felt you don't really need to query it. We just have the lightweight gRPC, you know, the streaming. That's what is nice about it when I was, I usually don't get too deep into the technical things all the time, but um, that it has that lightweight aspect of it that your server and your client know what the type and the interface is. In between the services, it gets sent into like a small, like lightweight binary and then it gets decoded and encoded on both sides because you have the definition of each. That's why protocol buffers have like the little number, the field numbers. I think that's the only thing that's sent over. And then each side knows what the name of the field is and then can decode it and do all their magic. But yeah, I think GraphQL is good for front end querying and then back end. I would recommend gRPC just because of it's easy to use and then you get generation of code if you have the polyglot environment like we do. So on the back end within Nav, you've got, sounds like Elixir services, Go services, maybe some Ruby services, and they're all talking to each other through gRPC and they know how to talk to each other because of protobufs. Is that kind of like the yes elevator pitch for gRPC and uh, protobuf? Cool. And is protobuf like, uh, so I think it's the de facto standard for schemas. Are there alternatives? So I think you can use JSON as well. I think RPC just using JSON and XML. But I think the for gRPC, the protocol buffers are kind of like the standard there, the selling point. Although I, I, I'm sure I could use JSON as well. That wouldn't be too bad. RPC versus gRPC. I, I know G stands for Google, right? So there's like a special like customized version of RPC made by Google. Is that right? So honestly, I looked up the meaning of the G everywhere when I was doing the talk. <laughs> and in some places it said it was Google. And then in other places it said something different. So I could never like actually conclude what it was and say it in my talk because I wasn't sure. Grand RPC maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but the maybe because like version. protocol buffers, like Google. I kind of thought it might've been, I was going to say go. <laughs> but it does have the similarity with Go that all the types, like, they don't have a nil. You know how Go doesn't have a nil? So you need to use pointers to have nils. The, like, default value for, like, a string is, like, empty string, and then for an integer is zero. The same exact thing happens with protocol buffers. We actually had to make some, like, nullable types because we want to know the difference between a zero and a, and a null. You know, this is still not... Like zero is still a value. So you can run into that issue with protobufs. But I think the new version might have some sort of 
fix for that I'm, or not a fix but like a it's possible to have no values maybe i think someone was looking into it here but i'm not sure where that went uh we've talked about protobuf for validating schemas across grpc and it looks like there's an interesting article about using graphql for schema validation can you tell us a little a little bit about them yeah so some of our team members actually i think i don't know if it's got published is the right way but We've been doing some pretty interesting stuff with eventing. Um, we needed a way to validate our event payloads and you know, kind of the same concept that we have for our proto repo for the definitions of messages and methods on the services. We're kind of doing the same thing, but for events. But for this, we decided to do a do it in GraphQL. So we write the definitions in GraphQL. And then our team created like generators in different languages. So this serves for polyglot environments as well. You can generate Ruby, Python, and Go right now. We haven't added Elixir because our Elixir app is not listening to any events right now, but it's pretty cool. You define your event in GraphQL and then it generates code and then you import that repo into your project and you can do a validation of the event to make sure all the fields are there before you publish it. And on the receiving end, you can also validate that the field, the event that you're receiving has all the fields necessary. And it's been pretty interesting to work on that. I've never worked with eventing before, so it's, it's new to us and we're learning a lot, but using GraphQL to like validate it all. We're just using the GraphQL like language, schema language, not mm -hmm. the whole shebang, but when you say eventing, are we talking about like the event-driven architecture or is this like a, a name of a service? Yeah. So event-driven architecture, we're using Amazon EventBridge and SQS to handle the eventing and the routing there. So yeah, just like account created and then whoever's interested in that can sign up for the receiving those events and then do application logic there. We thought it was like kind of like necessary now to have something like that. And it's been working out. And yeah, the team worked pretty hard making the a library. So if you're interested, there's like a Nav Inc. Nav Schema Architecture project on GitHub you can check out. Awesome. And I'll, I'll put a link to this blog post. This is from the past month. Yeah, just from a so. few weeks ago. So yeah, we'll have a link to this in the show notes. Awesome. So I guess to like reiterate this timeline, you gave that talk in, in 2020. What have you been up to since? You so you've clearly like moved around. You've gone from Luxor to Go in some places. You said you were doing managing. What has been your journey since then? Since that's the last time we kind of chatted about what you're up to. Yeah, I think later that year a managing position opened up, and I decided to try for it and ended up getting it. And then I was working in Elixir, and then I became a manager of a team with Ruby and Go. So for the last year. I was doing that. So I was getting a little bit familiar with Go and had like the legacy application in Ruby that we have. So that was fun. <laughs> if anyone finds that fun. And then I was like managing people that, and then I needed to tell them, hey, you have to also look at Go. And then if you're a Rubyist, if you're a Go person, you also have to look at Ruby. And that was where I found that complication between having like multiple languages. So yeah, I was managing that team. And then when I came back from maternity leave earlier this year, I went back to being an individual contributor because I thought I needed the flexibility and schedule. And I miss programming a lot. 
because as a manager, I thought I was going to be programming like 50% of the time and it was more like five to 10. <laughs> and it was really sad. Also, at the time we started using eventing, we're using Amazon EventBridge and like SQS to do eventing now at NAV. And it's been pretty fun and exciting to add a new tool to our tool belt. So that's a correct analogy. That one yeah. works. Yeah, that works. <laughs> I can totally um, empathize on the the management versus coding. I've been managing for the last like eight months, and I think I only started writing some like heads down code this week. <laughs> really? Oh, that's so bad. But it's Elixir. It's Elixir, guys. I know everyone has been hearing me talk about Flutter for the last like five thousand years, but um, it has been Elixir, so that's been nice. And some things you remember how to do, some things you don't. <laughs> Some things you do. That's though. why we have Google. Right. Yeah. So I was going to ask, like, what was something you discovered after becoming a manager that maybe, uh, like, a false assumption or something? So maybe you thought you you had more time to code. That wasn't true. Were there other things that, like, as an individual contributor, that you learned about being a manager during that time? Yeah, I think I do feel more for my manager now. I try to help out more and kind of get rid of the blockers myself rather than like relying on my manager for that because I know how busy you are and how you're looking at other things and I didn't realize how much you had to like look forward as a manager on what's the team going to do for like 12 months and balancing all these asks from account managers and product and then you also have to balance your like tech debt time because I always was like when are we going to work on tech debt? And oh, it's my manager's fault that we're not working on it. But really, as a manager, you're being told, like, if you can't fit it into, like, this, like, product thing, then you, you can't, like, do it because it has to have, like, business value. When you're in a startup, you can't just clean up something because you want to. So that was a big eye-opener there. And hiring is hard. <laughs> I'm curious about Sunday. Same question, like, aside from, like, being able to write less code as a, as a manager? Like, what are some other things you've kind of picked up? You, you get more empathy for like the holistic view of what all of your team members are working on when you see it. Because I think when your head's down, it's like so easy to just focus on what your code, your code alone, maybe extending to your project or, your, or in a product team environment to, to your team. But from what I've learned as as being a manager is just that like there are other people at the company who are working on other things. You have to make it all work together. And like this week, we've had like a really crazy deadline on one project. And so we've moved a few other things on others to make that a little more possible. And I get that holistic view of the way that world works. And I appreciate that because I can feel a little... I'm just somebody who operates better when I have a better understanding of the greater picture. And definitely when you're just heads down in the code you're writing, it's really hard to come up for air and, and make yourself look at everything like that. So that I think that's something that I've learned to do a little better is keep an eye on things. Well, now it's my job, <laughs> but um, I don't think I would have thought to do that without it. So Catalina, you're working at a startup that's writing microservices. At least at one point you were managing a team with, was it a team with like an assigned microservice or were people kind of tackling problems in whichever service needed help? 
Yeah, so last year we kind of had teams separated by domain and I was working on the customer account side and that involved having the authorization app, like our accounts, like legacy app. Well, also the enterprise application is in Go. So basically the two like legacy big apps in Ruby and Go plus a small auth service. And yeah, so we were divided kind of like by domain. I think now we have divided up the teams by like revenue stream trying something different. We were just backend as well. We did have a, a PM, but no front end. And now we're like a product team with like front end, back end and PM and then design, I think, and design and marketing are like separate, but we did have a ginormous question for you. Something mm -hmm. that Owen discovered about Nav that he he must know more about. Owen, I think you know. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping we'd get to this eventually. <laughs> These, uh, yeah, the about like the team page, you're like hugging or like you're on a beach with a, a very large penguin and it looks like there's movie posters. What's going on there? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, when I joined NAV, they had that cool page. And actually, one of the things that made me want to join NAV but this was the cool page with the but they photoshopped you into something. So when they asked me, I was like super unprepared and I had like no idea what I wanted. I was like, I really like penguins. <laughs> like I had like a penguin shirt or something. And then that's what the the girl that was doing this suggested. And I was like, kind of wearing like a nautical type dress with the white and black stripes. So it kind of yeah. made sense to do something from the ocean. Looking back, I, I wanted to do like a Taylor Swift one with like, I think there there's a video where there's like fire behind and she's like walking like that's what I should have done but I thought about it too late because that's what I do usually I just come up with things way too late do you also order the first thing off the menu in the restaurant I notice there's a correlation in that <laughs> <laughs> um I usually go to restaurants where I already know where I'm gonna get so ah okay <laughs> okay right, right. very prepared <laughs> I have an aunt who panic orders things like she'll be really? looking at the menu forever and she'll have an idea she wants the shrimp and grits and then the waiter comes over and she goes Caesar salad <laughs> <laughs> um, okay awesome. so for people who are not looking at the nav team page right now everyone has got like a movie poster ish about photo Oh man, this is interesting. So I'm seeing like sports movie, we can do it. It was posters. very open ended. <laughs> this is very open ended. Yeah, there's like a 007 um, poster. Ah, the the Thomas, uh, what is that called? Why am I forgetting? Thomas the Thomas Tank. The Tank. Oh, okay, cool. Or, I got that uh, right. No, not the Tank. The Train? engine. The can? The sure. one that can? No, is that something? Okay. It's been we're, 20, we're 30 years this. since I watched it. <laughs> I mean, this is just so fun, though. I mean, I can see why this was, you looked at this and you were like, ah, oh, this looks like a fun place to work. I think the closest we have at Smart Logic is the fun emojis will like add emojis of people's faces on things. We've got multiple of one person in dancing modes, and we have a designer who just loves making emojis the second that you've come up with something. And I definitely also always show up to any Slack party with my slew of rabbit emojis. I love my rabbit <laughs> emojis. I need them. So yeah, this penguin oh. was real cute. I yeah. gotta say, like the Photoshop like skills, whoever made all these, it's like seamless. Oh, yeah. like, mm -hmm. You could tell me these were like screenshots of an actual show or something. 
And these are from like 2017. I think we were supposed to get them updated because people have loved them so much that we were going to do another round with all the new people. Oh, I but, love that. Uh, yeah, it. I, I never saw it. I think for that one, I did pick like the Taylor Swift one. I was like, can you like Photoshop me into Taylor Swift somehow? Yes. And Amazing. So no, but the penguin still lives. I, if I knew it was going to be out there for this long, I would have probably like thought a little bit more about it. <laughs> Uh, but it lives it lives on sort of like how I don't know I just leaned into potato life I love potatoes I love eating potatoes I love being a potato I love everything about potatoes um, <laughs> and so I have this like little light up hold on I got it right yeah this little light up potato also <laughs> I just realized me. oh that's so cute <laughs> it's still it's still lighting up yeah 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 uh, light up potato. So, you know, you never know what's going to stick. So if people know you as Penguin Lady forever, you know, is that the worst thing? <laughs> yep. Oh, so good. <laughs> yes, maybe it is. <laughs> I really hope that we do get to see you at another Elixir conference one day. Although it sounds like it might have to be a go one unless you can you can stick it out with us a little more. <laughs> I have been doing a lot of Elixir work this year, which makes me happy. Yes, so. that's awesome. We have no plans on taking out our marketplace app into to go or anything like that. So as long as we have a marketplace, we will have Elixir. Okay. Awesome. We'll hold out hope for you and your happiness. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So Catalina, are there any final plugs or asks you have from the audience anywhere that people can find you on social media or are you hiring right now? Any of that good stuff? Yes. So we are hiring. I'm not very active on social media, but um, if you go to NAV Careers, we do have a few positions open. We're currently, I think, focusing on like engineering managers. I conducted some backend interviews this week, so I'm sure we still have backend positions open. And for our team, we are doing Go and Elixir. So if you want to do both, that's great. Or if you're doing one and want to learn about the other, then that's also something that'll work. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been so great chatting with you today. That's it for today's episode of Elixir Wizards. Thanks again to our guest, Catalina Ostengo, for joining us. I'm Sunday Mint, and my co-host is Owen Bickford. Elixir Wizards is produced by Hangar Studios and is brought to you by SmartLogic. Here at SmartLogic, we build custom web and mobile software. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Flutter, and more. Need a piece of custom software built? Hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Your reviews help us reach new listeners. You can find us on Twitter at SmartLogic or join the Elixir Wizards Discord, where the link is on the podcast page. And see you next week for more on Elixir in a polyglot environment.